0: Thank you. Welcome to episode 66 of the Search with Canda podcast recorded on Friday the 19th of June 2020. My name is Mark Williams-Cook and today I'm joined by Dawn Anderson who is Managing Director of be Bertie, and we're going to be talking about SEO information retrieval and foraging theory. Dawn, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the podcast. As usual, would love just to give you uh, a few moments to introduce yourself. If, so, if there's anyone in the SEO community who doesn't know who you are, uh, here's your chance to 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 introduce yourself and and let's know a bit about you.
1: Uh, hi, Mark. The first, thank you for inviting me on this uh, on this podcast. I've been a bit quiet of late, and um, yeah, so it's nice to actually speak to people. Um, I'm Dawn Anderson. I've been doing SEO for, well, it's 13 years now. Uh, And I also do some lecturing as well as SEO consulting. I help brands with their in-house teams to skill up in SEO and also run a boutique, i.e. small agency in Manchester. But we deal with people from all over the world, really. And um, yeah, so that's that's
0: about the size of it yeah i've been doing this for quite a while so i actually checked uh so as many of you know and lots of people in the seo industry i have kind of my main communication with other seos a lot of times is through twitter and i went back through my mentions and see i've been speaking to dawn now our first conversations were about six or seven years ago on on twitter um and i did actually notice that i noticed because you're quite well known kind of on the on the conference circuit and you did say you know you were going to be a little bit kind of quieter uh in 2020 and i think a, a few people i saw were planning that and we've kind of been forced to anyway with the whole coronavirus <laughs> situation uh, have just have you been attending or looking in it on any of the kind of online stuff that's been going on in terms of a lot of these uh, meetups have have transitioned online
1: um uh- well, I'd already committed to speaking at SMX London, and they converted that to a virtual event. So I spoke at that. I was asked to speak at a few others, but obviously, client work had to come first. Not that I'm not saying other people don't prioritize clients, of course. But some clients were impacted by coronavirus, um, had to close, uh, all sorts of things. So just a bit chaotic, so I had to focus if you like, very much on on helping them through this challenging time, so I didn't get a chance to look at as many things online as I'd have liked to do uh, I mean, there's a huge amount of, of webinars out there at the moment Yeah, They're Great. If, yeah If people in the past maybe didn't get to conferences it's certainly a time where there's a lot of learnings to be had I really feel for the event organisers just because I mean, it's ultimately, it's their business that's literally gone to the wall, and they're having to be innovative in in new ways to generate audiences and and keep the audience that perhaps would drift away throughout this time. Yeah, so, yeah. for sure.
0: I mean, our our event um, that obviously we were trying to get you to come on at some point, Search Norwich. I mean, we just decided as it's not kind of a revenue thing; it's it's just a non profit thing. Uh, we just kind of put that to bed for now which is cool because as you say we've got other other things like we've got obviously again clients that that needed extra time and attention but yeah I think you're right um you know there's it's super competitive or crowd I shouldn't say competitive, it's just crowded now that online kind of meeting space and it isn't you know for some people quite the same but you know it's a good time maybe if you haven't done a done a talk before to get involved yeah but what I did want to talk to you about, Dawn, and the the kind of subject of this podcast that I am really keen to get my teeth into uh, is about information retrieval. So, you know, this is an area where if I think about information retrieval, you are, um, at least from the SEO community, you know, at the top of my, you know, the tip of my tongue, top of my mind for that, Um So do you want to first just give us an idiot's definition of kind of what is information retrieval uh, in in context to SEO?
1: Um, Okay, so information retrieval is, well, it's the bigger thing behind search. Web search is a child, if you like, of information retrieval. So it's web search and everything involved in that. So if you like SEO as well, hand paid search and anything, any kind of. Um method of crawling indexing ranking is part of information retrieval so it's it's if you like it's the bigger picture um I mean, you can get really granular with information retrieval, of course, but it is a lot of people don't seem to have made the connection between s e o search and information retrieval but Search is part of information retrieval. It's, mm. it's any way that information can be fetched to meet an informational need.
0: Well, one of the things, one of the things that really interested me that, that I saw you said was that obviously you uh, spend time, like many SEOs you've read, uh, you know, reading books, blog posts, webinars. But you said actually you spend less time now doing that than time reading information retrieval books, papers or, you know, lectures while you're working. Yeah. So how can knowing about information retrieval help SEOs with their jobs?
1: So a lot of people think that search is a big secret, that SEO is a big secret. And, you know, it's kind of almost like magic, but it's not. Every single discipline out there has a background in research and SEO and web search is no different. So it's really understanding the foundations of how search engines work, obviously, each of them will have their own. It's like any commercial venture. It's not going to be exactly as it would be out of the box. You don't suddenly say, "Hey, you know I can do p h p so suddenly um it's not a big secret if that makes sense so there's just it's understanding really the core of search really hard to explain but it's understanding the core of search so for instance i was reading a book last week called search result diversification it actually is by researchers and search engineers and looks at the challenge of returning diverse results ranked well and it discusses lots of algorithms which search engines use presumably in, including google There's a lot of Google engineers and researchers attend information retrieval conferences and present papers. And for instance, Google BERT was from the information retrieval world. So it literally is search. So I read lots of books around how search works if you like.
0: So, I mean, we had, um, it wasn't, I think, how long ago was it? Probably six months. I'm probably gonna find that's totally wrong when I go back and look, but we did actually have, I think it was last year now, the the Google update uh, that Danny Sullivan detailed that was actually specifically around domain diversity because that was a challenge Google was having, um, especially with sites like Amazon where you've got these really authoritative sites and you do a search, um, and you know you, you get maybe five out of the first six results with different Amazon URLs because that's not particularly helpful, is it, to the user?
1: No, absolutely not. But research result diversification goes much further than that. That was there was almost like a declustering of, of sites from the same domain. I know that they've they've revisited that a few times because the likes of Yelp comes back up there using their internal linking structures and if you like the cross-referencing and relatedness of various pages together, which kind of boosts them. But search result diversification is about how can we meet all the different informational needs that somebody has... But we don't really understand what the query means, because okay,
0: so this is around intent, then
1: yeah, because they don't understand it. it's really, really hard i mean if you if you follow the likes of Susan DeMace, who's a one of the chief researchers at Microsoft, Microsoft and a real giant in the information retrieval and search world, she looked at many years ago what she called the vocabulary problem, which is that people just don't use the same words to describe the same things, Hmm. you know? So you have the challenge of the query, and then you have the challenge of actually understanding the documents as well. And it's search result diversification, which was only a 70 page book and written by a research team in Glasgow who are everywhere in the IR space and conferences and doing papers and all sorts, very smart guys. Um, they looked at the challenge of how can we who can we return these the best set, combining what they call both precision and recall. Precision is this is the most accurate result, most relevant. Recall is everything that is related or is is kind of relevant but is not exact. Because might mm-hmm. have a choice, that's the whole point of search results as well. So So that's really what search result diversification is about. And those are the kind of books I spend my time reading.
0: So that's really interesting because that's a um, process we go through with clients just in terms of intent. So to give you an example, you know, if if they come along and say, OK, we want to rank our, you know, our service for this kind of search term. And then when you start looking for that, you can see, for instance, the type of results you get back might be, say, comparison results rather than individual um, service providers like themselves. You know, we can start to have those conversations about, well, Google's deciding here that, you know, the primary intent of that person for that search is actually they want to do a comparison. They don't want a specific result. But then with these kind of broader results, one thing I've noticed is, Um, And this is a sort of strictly anecdotal thing that I know some people don't agree with, but I've noticed um, Google tends to push up or have more prominent things like the people also asked when when the query is super generic, as if it's trying to get, understand the user's query better, much like if we had a conversation and you said, you know, tell me about this topic. And I'm like, well, you know, what part do you want to know about? Because I see this now, just with the standard organic kind of results as well, where we might get a, a couple of clusters of totally different types of um, types of search result, where Google's identified different things. Like, like uh, one I always used to use an example in SEO training was doing a search for something like the word Blender, which, as you as you may know, is a piece of software for three D modeling, but is also a product. So Google's like, uh, I'm not quite sure what you're looking for, so it will serve both.
1: Exactly, and I, I funnily enough, I, I have the the blender example in a training deck uh, because it returns if you say blenders, it returns the shopping results.
0: That's right. Yeah. yeah.
1: So <laughs> if you type blender, then it returns the brand with the knowledge panel on the right hand side. Yeah, and yeah. I think there's a film as well that comes. Blender.
0: That's right, blended.
1: Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so that's exactly the point, but but I mean. The search result diversification book. The point is that is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of information retrieval. There are so yeah. many facets to it. I mean, even in the world of SEO, as we know, we could rattle off. There's local SEO. There's technical SEO. There's people who do PR and links and um, that kind of thing. And then there's brand SEO. And then there's you know now there's AEO is a SEO. Any industry begins to fragment as people start to specialise. IR is many, many years old, and it has many, many fragmentations because so many parts of it are completely different. Image information retrieval is is a completely different field to text information retrieval, and obviously you have specialists in that because obviously, as we know, images are not ranked in the same way, but they're classified because Mm -hmm. they're not crawled for text. Uh, but that's just an example. And then you have music information retrieval. Then you have library science. Then you have the whole like machine learning and, and uh, the Google Berts of this world and so forth, which is taking it all forward with a quantum leap. Um. So there's many, many, many areas to it. The course I watched continuously by Professor Hannah Bass from, uh, I think she was at is the University of Freiburg, actually. She was at the Max Planck Institute for for years, and that has 18 one hour long lectures, each of them with a different topic be that about compression algorithms, how search engines compress uh, the index uh, for space and efficiency, because obviously that's a big deal, Uh, be it about natural language processing, be it about machine learning, be it about naive base. And I, I know I'm talking a lot now, but another thing. That information retrieval is about is that I see a lot of people in SEO say, ooh, it's all about the algorithm." There's no such thing as the algorithm. There are anything that is basically a mathematical way to provide a solution or order something is an algorithm. You know, your average shopping site has an algorithm that drives its results. In when you in, even WordPress, when you enter a search into the, the box of a blog that's an algorithm that spits out results. So Albeit one. a
0: bad one. <laughs>
1: but the point is, there's no such thing as the algorithm. There are absolutely hundreds, if not more, of algorithms out there. And the, the lectures, for instance, show us that. You know, there, there must be six or seven different algorithms for just compression and efficiency. There's one called the Gollum, uh, the Solomon Gollum, algorithm that's about compression yeah and it's all just maths basically and for me seo is combining maths with marketing Mm
0: mm-hmm so what we'll do, I think, uh, Dawn, as well, at the end of this podcast is I will get some links to some of these people that you've mentioned um, and we'll put them in the show notes at search.withcandor.co.uk. So if you want to start following uh, the people Dawn's talked about, I'll make sure I get those links from her. Um Dawn, I, there's something I specifically want to pick on. So we've we've spoken about information retrieval as this kind of broader topic of which SEO is a is a child of, um, and this um how it kind of shards into many different areas of SEO in different ways. But there's couple of specific things I did want to talk to you about because you, you had a really interesting uh, tweet I saw a few days ago, uh, which if you don't mind, I'll just read it out to you and then we can discuss it. So you said, you met uh, an IRML, so information retrieval, machine learning researcher from the Max Planck Institute at ECIR who develops machine learning algorithms to detect author footprints in just three lines of code. His work was for insurance fraud but apparently these things are widely used. I suspect it'd be very easy to see who's who online. And this really kind of piqued my interest, especially because in, in the kind of field of SEO, you know, we had uh, Google authorship kind of come and go. Uh, and we've got lots of people now, you know, eat uh, this expertise, authority, trust, and getting experts to to write, you know, or authoritative kind of content, you know, that's all, things a lot of topics people speak about now in terms of seo and it's not always particularly clear i don't think when people are talking about eat exactly what they mean so i'm interested in your thoughts about you know what do you think um might be happening in terms of this um identifying authors and eat is there something going on there that you think google would be working on
1: okay so first and foremost um for me EAT is very much just a an it's obviously just an anagram that is used and a simple layperson's way for quality raters to understand how to how to how to mark things as a trustworthy result. Now I've read quite a bit about how the human in the loop quality rater enters the equation when it comes to producing search results. Um, a test algorithm is run or results are refined over a period of time. And then they're obviously tested, etc. And then they're pushed out to humans because the best measure of whether something is good is a human. So obviously Google have the quality rate. And eek is in the guide, obviously. And then the results all come back anonymously. I've read this as well. This was, po- this was a post from somebody on Quora who was a, an engineer from Microsoft who previously worked with Microsoft in the search engine. Uh but it's human in the loop is in a lot of in a lot of books in on IR and that's basically the human testers if you like. Not just that, human in the loop can also mean the user of the search engine, providing feedback, reporting the results are not great or whatever. Click dare I say clicking on things It's a sign of <laughs> I don't want to call it that all like
0: well while, while you're talking about while you're talking on that i'll just interject and again i'll put a link to this in the talk so i think you like this one as well dawn there's a very uh one of my favorite talks about how search works uh i think it's 2016 smx yeah, awesome. paul Ha talking about an engineer's point of view and he's quite specific there in how he talks about the difficulties in using click data so if that's uh just if you're listening if that's triggered kind of your thoughts about how google oh, uses clicks go watch that video and come back (laughs)
1: It's, it's not about that it's just I mean it's just massive data it's massive massive data that just all gets combined for them to adjust things broadly and then they're pushed out to samples of humans that go and score things and then there's this thing called when all the scores come back in there's this thing called I think it's called discounted cumulative gain normalized discounted cumulative gain whereby it's an algorithm where all the scores are adjusted slightly based on these samples, many samples of humans to say, hey, well, that's about it. So it comes back to maths and that's it. But there is validity in using the word eat. I'm a great fan of some of the people that, and Lily Ray, for instance, is a super smart girl. She knows her stuff. She's a good friend of mine and I've had some really great conversations with her and she's very very clever so i know she's a huge advocate of trust, trust authority and she get she's getting the results so that's fair enough so um i think there is validity in it i think we all have terms that we use to that are simple to explain to clients and i think that's why google have called it eat i don't think you'd ever find an ir engineer call it eat and i asked Harry <laughs> on twitter when we were having a bit of a joke about anywhere the only person that's ever mentioned it is Paul Ha, and that was only when he was talking about cons. Some of the things I'm talking about now, I'd probably never get away with talking about to clients because they're too, you know, they're too geeky. And sometimes the IR speak is too geeky, so it has to be made simple for quality raters who need simple way to say, "How can I tell if somebody's an expert, an author, and they trustworthy? Go and investigate." Okay. So that's that point. Uh, so on to the other issue about the authorship and the trust, etc. So the chap I was talking about when I said I met an IR researcher at ECIR. So ECIR is a European Conference for Information Retrieval. And we went to dinner and I sat next to a chap who's, again, a super smart guy, many years at the Max Planck Institute, and he's just finishing off his PhD. His subject matter is author, Detection of but he worked for fraud companies, but he did, he was actually speaking at ECR. He developed an algorithm which was tiny, tiny, just a few lines of code, using compression algorithms, um, that is able to look at author the footprints. And if you want to look him up, just in case you don't believe me, uh, who who would think that somebody wouldn't believe somebody in the world of SEO? Um <laughs> He's called Oren Halvani, O-R-E-N Halvani, and he was speaking at ECIR. and he literally, his work for six years now has been on building algorithms that can be used in search or in technology to detect fraud. Who an author is. His work is fascinating, actually, and I'm pretty sure that there'll be that, in place with the whole guest posting thing i mean it's really easy for us as humans to get today i got an email or yesterday i got an email from somebody and said hey i'm john blah blah i'm using an example of a common name it had a picture as well so he clearly had a gmail account no other footprint at all yeah so these it doesn't take a rocket scientist and i think There's a lot of people in SEO spend a lot of time trying to sweep up after themselves thinking that deep learning, machine learning systems can't pick up on the fact that this is a fake person. Seriously, I'm not sure that it's worth the effort. I think they should realize that Google is really, really smart at being able to tell who people are and algorithms can pick up an outlier just like that. Certainly the work of somebody like Orin Alvani. And if you look, there's loads of papers on that. You know, these systems are used to just detect when somebody's wrote something. I, I imagine they'd be able to cluster together all all of the papers that I'd ever written or all of the blog posts that I'd ever written or all of the contributions that I'd ever written because I'll have a style. I'll, You know, it's just easy and... When somebody asked John on Twitter, that's how the conversation started because he said, "It's pretty obvious when something's a guest post." So I'm not sure it's worth the effort for SEOs to be trying to trick Google. Yeah,
0: that's yeah. really interesting because obviously they did. Uh, when I say they, uh, should say John uh, Mueller from Google did, um, you know, have that comment. I think it was this week or last week. Now, when they were confirming that every they were just saying anytime time you do a guest post, the link should be no followed. But also, he seemed kind of blasé about it because the st- the comment he made was, "We're pretty good at algorithmically detecting when it's a guest post now," um, which I, you know, I just thought was quite impressive. Goes along with what you're saying. Um, I've seen mixed, you know, results uh, myself, but obviously the web is very big, and I'm only looking at a tiny part. But I think the point, you know, you're rightly making here is that look, you know we're we're basically training machines to spot patterns and actually machines do a much better job at spotting patterns especially with lots of data than humans do so while we use human in the loop stuff for um almost like fitness testing and you know uh real world testing to get that granular view if we're if we're looking at masses of data and like you said you know it's about spotting outliers when you've got literally you know billions, very big number of pages to compare the outliers do become um yeah they do become kind right. of obvious. I
1: know because much of it's about clustering. Authors authorities of authors will have built a cluster that will stand out. And then you have all these other randoms all over the place. <clears throat> and I'm trying to implement a lot of the things that I learn in IR for instance to visualize clusters and link graphs and I think a uh, uh, guest posting author will stand out like a sore thumb in a link graph, and all the places that they've posted at will literally be visible if you look at it in terms of a link graph because they send these lists of, like, hey, I write for this.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> when you zoom down and look at it from above, you'll have the map of potentially all the places where they post. So it's it's not difficult, I think. We need to step back. Um, I mean, things like, I talk quite a bit about things like Zipfian and distribution. That's a big thing I've learned a lot about in the world of uh, reading information retrieval books. And it literally applies to everything. Zipfian and distribution will apply to the most authoritative writers on the world on the topic of SEO or on any topic. Um and zip.
0: Can can you give us a quick definition of Zipfian distribution, Dawn?
1: Anything that, anything that is ordered, literally, is like the word the is the most used word in the world, yeah. The second most used word in the world is used half as much as the and the third is used a third as much as the and that distribution or frequency is ordered to anything in the world. Populations of cities, every language in the world follows this Zip, Zipfian curve where it just halves every time across every single version of Wikipedia, across every language, even languages that are not known or not not um, translated as yet. Popular, everything. Seriously, it's a power law. And that power law applies massively to SEO. For instance, it's the reason why PageRank halves every time because in a frequency distribution, Everything is proportional to one over its rank, yeah? So that is a big thing that has massively helped. Understanding that has massively helped me in being able to look at these bigger concepts and understand, for instance, that some authors will just stand out because of this whole like zip and distribution. And then you'll have all the random guest posters from all over the place on the very edges of this zip curve. So, are these
0: algorithms going to be smart enough? Because obviously, I I got married and changed my name, Dawn, from Mark Cook to Mark Williams Cook. So, are these algorithms going to be smart enough to know that?
1: Well, that's they will over the time. But but you're an entity. Well, you're not an entity. You are, but you're not because obviously, true entities are in the knowledge graph, etc. But you what you what you'll find is that for a while, Mark Cook will come up, then Mark Williams Cook. It's about named entity disambiguation. And that is where um, things like unlinked mentions come into play. And again, Gary Iash mentioned that when somebody said, what's the point of an an unlinked mention? He said, we use it for entity disambiguation. So for a while, they'll work it out. But it's why, for instance, they struggle so much with locations of the UK. Because, for instance... You know, Manchester is in Greater Manchester, but then Manchester City is Manchester. And then you've got Manchester Manchester, which is a child of... Manchester City is a child of Manchester. And it's throughout the whole of the UK, that, and throughout the whole of the world. And people get it wrong. So you have all these databases where people are guessing wrong. Then you've got Wikipedia that's out of date. So entity disambiguation is a different thing, but... It's again all part of information
0: retrieval, so yeah. so we're this is fascinating to this is really interesting stuff we're, we're already at thirty minutes, and there's one other subject I did want to cover uh with you uh because I saw you had you had again briefly uh mentioned it, and it really interested me because uh, I had to google this it was back in two thousand and ten. So 10 years ago, I saw Duncan Morris from Distilled and he did a a talk about foraging theory uh, and kind of optimal foraging theory in terms, in context to humans trying to find information. And I saw you mentioned there's a lot of research still going into search behavior of, of humans and kind of how they use scents and patches. And I really just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about foraging theory. So it'd be great if maybe you could just explain what foraging theory is to our listeners um how they can go about kind of understanding it and how is it helpful to seo and kind of user experience
1: okay so first and foremost foraging theory theory is really old i think one of the first papers was by a author's called Peroli and card dates back to like you know years i can't even remember how long but it's a long time and basically it relates to the way that humans will continue we're like we forage for information in the same way that animals will forage for food. And we'll follow a scent and as long as we think there is value to be had and that we're moving further towards our goal. And foraging theory is mentioned a lot in the field of information architecture, which obviously is a side like a side topic to information retrieval. Information architecture is about the way things are all built together in an information structure. Obviously, data science sits with that as well. And then you have information retrieval, which is about, obviously, the fetching, organising, indexing, like filing system, and then serving like a librarian would if you ask for a book. But the point is, foraging theory is still ongoing. Again, the team from Glasgow, the research I mean into foraging theory is still ongoing. Because humans don't stop Humans are constantly changing the way that they search. New technology is coming through all the time. But we still have this, those same informational needs because we're informables, if you like. That's, that's, humans live off information. But, and people, as we know, don't search in the same way ever because we're all different. Each generation, obviously, changes as well because you've got the likes of people now on a mobile and so they a lot of the time they want to use the actual internal search box on a website rather than actually browsing through but then other people will actually choose to browse and click from one section to another so information foraging is about that, understanding the behaviour understanding, making sure that people realise there's still value beyond that next step as they seek and forage and follow these, what they call scent patches, information scent patches which are and that's why the, the likes of click here on a link is a really bad thing. Not only is it bad for accessibility, but it's bad for information foraging because you're not telling people what the gain is, what's the value that's behind that link. Yeah, That's why as well, if you're deceptive in your, in your anchors or your anchor text, send somebody through a bad door, that's bad for information foraging because you basically reduce the value the user perceives that you have for them to find the information that they need
0: is part of uh foraging theory as well to do with kind of friction and resistance in getting that value so for instance like my search behavior has changed if i want to know the weather now i just by voice ask my phone because it's basically less effort than typing something into google so is that something you consider when you're thinking about Foraging theory and, and, and providing that information and value?
1: Well, I, I mean, foraging theory is kind of more specific to people that rooting around, really don't know what they're looking for, particularly. Okay. Um, but it's because it is all part of the same thing. I mean, for me, the likes of mobile has changed everything, as we know. And for me now, features that you can offer... Our information, you know, you just you just use the what's the weather thing in the voice search or ask your phone. Um, a way of helping with information foraging in a in a voice sense, for instance, could be clarifying questions because voice search has been very poor. So obviously, people almost stop bothering with it a lot of the time, because, other than to watch, other than to listen to Spotify or to check the weather, which is one of the most popular things. Because um, because it was pretty rubbish for quite a while there. And it's still not amazing. And again, another person I know is working in that field specifically of conversational search. Mohammed, uh, he's a great. I'll, I can never pronounce his surname. I think it's Mohammed Ajabajani. He's a researcher from Switzerland, but now moved to Amsterdam, uh, working in the field of conversational search. He did a great piece of research that actually found that when the search engine or or conversational assistant asks a clarifying question such as, did you mean blah, 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 or you know, we have five of those which one is it type thing, that actually makes a massive, massive difference to the value people perceive in the information you're giving them, or it helps them meet their need, because you're forming a bridging gap. And I think that's probably part of the reason why people also ask is, is in there, is to help people on that journey. It,
0: it, it's interesting when you compare uh, kind of information foraging to foraging for food and not people not being sure about what they want because it just reminds me of all the times I've got sucked into that um, circle of behaviour in Wikipedia where you just, <laughs> you go to look up one thing and then you end up clicking on link after link and re- reading something completely different. I guess that's the information equivalent of binge eating, <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> where you just got to find something and you get set on a scent trail and then that's me done for an hour and a half, ending up reading about Greek history or something when I started reading about algor- algorithms.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's why the likes of you know, contextual internal linking is very, very important, as long as it's useful and helpful. Because you want people to be able to continue there. Some people love browsing. I, I get the impression that you're like that, as you just said. You know, you you like to go off and follow a path of information. Like me, I, I like to just keep going down rabbit holes because I find that those are where all the best things are. Um, yeah, So so that's really... It's very much akin to, like, animals. It's an interesting topic. It's very much part of UX as well now, so... All of these, just these disciplines are very combined.
0: So to round this podcast off, uh, have some fun, speculate with me, Dawn. Uh, we won't hold you to any of this, I promise. Uh, have you got any thoughts around how SEO, and not necessarily just in terms of IR and machine learning, but obviously welcome those topics. How do you think, what do you think we're going to see changing over the next kind of five years or, or more? Uh, I
1: think, I think search is just going to become increasingly about features that you can provide to help users. So obviously words still matter. But, for instance, on, you know, uh, as you said, the weather, being able to get the weather. Uh, on e-commerce sites, for instance, you know, the other day, uh, I think Marie had a an interview with John Mueller, and he was talking about all, the, all those pointless words you see on e-commerce websites. Uh, on the category page, that are clearly made yeah. by search engines.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: You know, I asked that question of him a few years ago on Webmaster Hangout, and I think we'll move more and more away from those kind of things into a fewer words type of scenario. But features matter. So feature weight. So are there lots of great pictures on that fashion website? Are there? Is there a the runway video. Is there a three sixty degree? Is there a facility to be able to try on virtually that outfit? Or you know, is there a, not so much colors, but is there is there is there just all these really interesting features? Is there a section that answers questions that other people have asked in there on this? So, ladening features is the is the way forward, I think. But obviously, that's just a very small part of it. I mean. For me, search will become increasingly just an assistive part of our life. The challenge is, sometimes, I think a lot lot of people will start to devalue SEO and not realise that SEO is as much, if not more, of a necessity as those features become part of an offering because they all need optimising. There'll still be fuzzy edges that search engines still won't be able to work out. There'll still be continuous change. And it's not enough just to be a marketer and to just guess because SEO is a finely tuned balancing act of watching for change, understanding why or how that change might have happened. Was it something on the site technically? Was it because of a query intention? Was it because just a general change in user information need on the web or in the territory as a whole? Yeah. So, yeah, so I think it's important that people realise SEO still needs to be very much at the heart of all of this. Otherwise, it is literally, and I said I wasn't going to use these words, it is literally just guess SEO, guess <laughs> SEO.
0: I knew it would come in there. Dawn, that's a brilliant way, I think, to to wrap everything up. Thank you so much uh, for your time. I really appreciate it, really appreciate your insights on IRML. We'll get those links from you uh, to put them in the show notes for everyone. Really appreciate you joining
1: us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So, we're going to be back on Monday, the 29th of June, as we always are on Monday mornings. To get the show notes, uh, all the links to everything we've just spoken about, and Dawn's website, you can go to search.withcandor.co.uk. As usual, if you've got any feedback, uh, do drop us a line on social or email. If you have questions, because we do QA sessions sometimes on this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. And of course, whatever platform you're on, if you do enjoy the podcast, do subscribe. And I hope you'll all tune in next week.